0: The Fates and the Furies. They were triple goddesses, the three Fates and the three Furies, all sisters, and forever linked because the cards they dealt were the most basic. I refer to life and death. However respected, they were equally feared and in truth despised because no one escaped. They occupied different worlds. The Fates sat on Mount Olympus in golden light beside Zeus, while the Furies lived in Hades' dark underworld. Their origin? All were the spawn of their cheerless mother, Nyx. That's spelled N-Y-X. Her name meant night. She was older than any of the Olympic gods, and one of the first offspring of the primal god, Chaos. Her children were, without exception, dreadful forces such as death, strife, pain, and of course, the Fates and the Furies. As for the Fates, to the Greeks, they were the Mori, siblings who determined every mortal's destiny. Even today, people mutter following some spoiled event It was fate, as if the three sisters are still at work. And the Furies? They were goddesses of vengeance, anger, and retribution. They punished mortals who violated what were considered natural laws. Sometimes they punished an entire country for even housing an offender. In ancient Greece, good behavior was paramount because justice was meted out by the courts and by the gods. Welcome to Episode 18 of Garner's Greek Mythology. I'm your host, mythologist, and best-selling author Patrick Garner. You can read more about my novels and about this podcast at patrickgarnerbooks.com, all imagine the ancient gods living in modern times. And check out the new page about Greek gods I've just added to the website. It covers all of the important names. As always, this podcast series focuses on one thing. Greek gods, of course. Here, the ancient gods are not considered imaginary. Hardly. Instead, they, like you, are here now. Let's start with the fates. Think of them as being agents of predestination. Here's how it worked. Within seconds of any birth, the fates chose the child's destiny, including occupation and lifespan. A person could rewrite the plan, but only for the worse. Good behavior didn't buy more time, but a horrendous deed could shorten it. You see, crime led to punishment. The Furies would cancel whatever the Fates had decreed and initiate a more immediate end. In black skirts and hunter's boots and with oily black snakes wreathing on their heads, they'd swoop down upon the offender, screeching and moaning. In that way, the Fates and Furies were yoked like fierce black horses to a common purpose. You'll remember from previous episodes that the Greeks were unusually superstitious. This seemed surprising coming from a region that was the cradle of philosophy and logical thought. Yet in the same way that the Greeks feared saying Hades' name, afraid he'd suddenly turn his focus on them, they avoided saying the Furies. In Greek, the name meant I hunt or I persecute. So rather than use the real name, the Greeks referred to them as the well-meaning goddesses. And the Athenians had their own euphemism calling the Furies Semnithii or esteemed goddesses. These pleasantries were, of course, the opposite of the Furies real nature. But in ancient Greece one couldn't be too careful. Daringly, the 5th century BC playwright Aeschylus was far more direct, referring to them as the curses, because anyone they pursued was cursed. Perhaps Aeschylus used artistic license to get away with calling them out, but for most Greeks, some things were better left unsaid. So, what did you have to do to incur the Furies' fury? Horrendous crimes, such as murder, would always trigger their wrath. But over time, the list of crimes grew. The poet Homer included lying, parental disobedience, and even disrespect of old age. Regardless, what made the Furies so feared was that neither prayers, nor sacrifice, nor tears could sway them. Once in motion, they always destroyed their prey. Even romance meant nothing to them. Like the fates, they took vows of chastity. Their focus was not clouded by love. With wings as long as their bodies and whips made from bull hide, the furies were described as hideous things whose purpose could not be mistaken. I mentioned earlier that they resided with Hades in the Underworld. There they worked with Hermes, escorting souls to their final destination. But let's shift from the Furies to their sisters, the Three Fates. They had no need to dirty their hands like the Furies. On Mount Olympus, they wore white gowns and were entertained by Apollo and Pan. But there was little glamour in their lives. The fates were more like bureaucrats, recording names and assigning destinies as if they were endlessly shuffling cards. If we were to listen in on one of their working sessions, we might hear, this one will be a farmer who lives 43 years, 47 days and 42 seconds. And this one, the red-faced baby born a moment ago in Laconia will live to the age of 24 then fall off a horse while hunting wolves. And the one there in Athens with the dark hair make her a priestess to serve Apollo until she falls ill at 74 years and 12 days on the night of the full moon. Their tones will be monotonous, rarely excited, but occasionally Zeus may intervene saying, please, a long life for that one. He's become a general. He'll serve his people well. Let him live long enough to taste glory on the battlefield. There's an image of the fates that Greeks used constantly, really, to illustrate their duties, and that's of a woman making thread on a spinning wheel. The fates worked on the thread of life. At the spindle, one was the spinner who spun the thread. Another measured its length and the third cut the thread, ending the life. Remember I used the word predestination. I also noted that one's destiny was not inflexible. Zeus might try to intervene, but Zeus's involvement was a rarity. For the most part, a mortal would live exactly as long as the fates decreed. And even Zeus could only push so far. The playwright Aeschylus has the chorus ask in his work, Prometheus bound, Who then drives all of this? Prometheus, one of the titans, replies, The fates and the ever-mindful furies. The chorus then says, Can it be that Zeus has less power than they do? Prometheus quickly says, Yes, even he cannot escape what is foretold. Remember the story of Simile? She was Dionysus' mother, really just a girl caught up in one of Zeus's many affairs. Zeus' wife, Hera, tricked Simile into persuading Zeus to reveal himself as the thunder god. Of course, Hera knew that no mortal could see Zeus in his divine light and survive. Zeus tried to dissuade Simile, but knew he could not fight against what the fates had decreed. With regret, knowing the outcome, he revealed himself and Simile was instantly destroyed. There's little doubt that the fates watched it happen and then, without emotion, went on as before, assigning destinies to each new soul. In my novel The Winnowing, the three fates reappear in modern America and call themselves Chloe, Lane, and Isa. They're sisters, of course, and seem to be three regular girls who live with their father, Jack. However, after a series of strange events, the appearance of a three-headed dog in the backyard, and a woman dressed like a Greek goddess carrying a silver bow, Jack confronts Lane, who seems unsurprised and untroubled by what's going on. I'll read a few paragraphs. As the story begins, Lange shrugs and speaks of her real mother, who was the primal goddess Nyx, saying, Okay, Jack, we'll start with my mom. She was a dark personality. Imagine a girl from today with spiked hair and face tattoos, a derringer tucked in her bra, a hellraiser with a bottle of gin half out of her purse, A nose ring or two, she was aptly called Knight, or at the time, Nyx. Jack leaned forward and she said, but there's more. Nyx gave birth to numerous children, including three girls called the Morai. Some of the children resulted from her coupling with other gods, some she generated herself. No matter how many kids she had, she looked like a kick-ass starlet. Lane seemed enthralled by this divulgence. A Botticellian beauty radiated from Lane's face, her lips, her cheeks, the black lashes cradling her eyes. "'There's more,' she said. "'I mentioned the Morai?' Jack nodded. "'They were later called the Fates, or Enchanters, or the Apportioners.' "'Three sisters,' he said. "'I'm getting bits of this, but it all sounds like Disney.' Oh, it's not. They were powerful. They control the fortunes of mortals and gods alike. Jack said, What were their names? Chloe, Lane, and Isa? Standing Lane said, Clotho, Lachesis, and, yes, Isa. A hellish ringing filled his ears. I'm way over my head, girl. No, you're not. She was dazzling, her eyes resplendent. And I'm to believe you and Chloe and even Isa are these ancient goddesses somehow revived? She spread her arms out saying, Yes. That's all I'm reading from The Winnowing, just a tease. But you can see that here, these divinities are hardly missed. Now we'll go back to ancient times to mingle with the Olympic gods. Sometimes the fates stepped away from their mundane duties for some hands-on intervention. There are stories about how they arranged a couple of Zeus's seven marriages. The Greek poet Pindar wrote, first the fates in their golden chariot brought heavenly goddess Themis from the ocean springs to the sacred stairs of Olympus to be the bride of Zeus. And the comic playwright Aristophanes wrote, the fates united Hera to Zeus, who governs the gods from the summit of his throne. The fates were also associated with the love goddess Aphrodite. We think of her as stirring passion and creating mad infatuation. Love led to newborns, and at birth, the fates stepped in. Now for a somewhat somber final comment on the Furies. We've heard them called the curses. They had two types of curses. One was the Furies' own, which were curses that imposed madness or plague on the offender. But in addition, they sometimes acted on the curses made by mortals. Think about that the next time you lose your temper. Words said in anger may be temporarily satisfying, but what if the Furies overhear? When a curse was justified, the Furies turned it into a death warrant and one that couldn't be escaped. When that occurred, the Furies trumped the fates, completely rewriting whatever had been preordained. And as it turns out, there was a little something extra in it for the Furies when they responded Think of it as a kind of tip. Aeschylus, the playwright, clues us in when he describes the Furies drinking the blood of their victims. In other words, the Furies may have been the first vampires. This revelation was shocking to his audiences. Today, we've reimagined vampires as handsome, suave young men, and sophisticated young women. They're always on the hunt. They appear in books, movies, and on TV, but the vampire furies of ancient Greece were hardly polished or debonair. On the contrary, suppose you've committed some horrendous crime. A day or two passes and you begin to hope that you've gotten away with it. Let's say, gotten away with murder. It's early evening, you're walking toward town and suddenly, ahead of you, three women materialize on the path. Slick black snakes wreathe in their hair. Although their faces are shrouded, you catch glimpses of red eyes. You know instantly, they're the furies which you had thought to escape. As you freeze, each of them unrolls a whip. I haven't taken a step, but now, bewilderingly, they surround you. There's nowhere to flee. The full moon darkens. You feel a cold wind and terror. You face... In our next episode, we follow the exploits of Greece's most infamous woman, Medea. Medea, she helps Jason and the Argonauts steal the Golden Fleece, but that's hardly all. A decade later, when she's spited by Jason, her revenge leads to multiple deaths, including kings, princesses, and her own children. Be sure to visit PatrickGarnerBooks.com or find me on Amazon. My three novels are set in today's world and feature Greek gods who meddle and maneuver as they always have.